Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. If your cholesterol is crazy abnormal eating mostly bacon, ribeye, you know, and butter all day long, and I can tell you, you can have all the benefits of keto and your cholesterol will come down, but you just have to change the composition of, of fats that you eat. A lot of people say, that's great, I'll sign me up. And in fact, a lot of people will say, I actually prefer to eat that way. I think eating the other way is kind of a little bit gross. Like it feels yeah, like gross. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I think the important thing is that people just understand that there are options. Uh, that to me, more than anything else is like, if I could convey one thing to everybody, it's you don't, there's not one way to do keto and there are lots of options. And for the time being, my philosophy is don't dismiss the role of, uh, of cholesterol and developing this disease that, as you mentioned, is the number one killer of people in the world. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Well, friends, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I have a very special treat for you. I sat down with Dr. Ethan Weiss, and we talked all things heart health. Now, Dr. Weiss is an associate professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, and he's a principal investigator in the Cardiovascular Research Institute, CVRI. Dr. Weiss received his medical degree from John Hopkins University, and he also completed his internship and residency there. He came to UCSF in 1988, and he completed his cardiology fellowship and research training there. And his interests are in understanding the mechanisms of metabolic disorders such as obesity, NAFLD or fatty liver disease, and diabetes, including the role of growth hormone uh, signaling and lipid metabolism. Now, we went on such a geeky magic carpet ride. So before I go even further in terms of telling you what we talked about, which was phenomenal, and you're going to be so excited, hopefully as I was, to have this conversation with him, but you're going to want to use the show notes for this episode. So if you want, you can go to bettershow.com co forward slash show notes. That's S-H-O-W-N-O-T-E-S. And this is going to give you all your science-backed resources, all the studies, all the things that he referenced and I referenced in our conversation for better living. So this is basically 
receiving notes from my virtual prescription pad, studies, personal best practices, and really what I have learned and what I have implemented from our conversation and from this episode. So what we talked about. So we talked, we did like a mini course in lipidology. So there's so much confusion in terms of what cholesterol is, what is HDL, what is LDL, what are these weird things called LP little a, and coronary artery calcium scores. So we did a mini crash course for you, which I thought he did an excellent job in, uh, in unpacking. So we talked about cholesterol, the good cholesterol, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, so HDL and LDL, what they do, what pattern A and what pattern B is, what LP little a is and coronary artery calcium scores, his favorite labs. So uh, we talked about different scenarios in terms of if you are a 45-year-old male versus a 24-year-old female and what labs he might order. And then we got into such a juicy discussion around the biology or the sexual dimorphisms between men and women. So the differences that men and women have in terms of cardiovascular risk. Now, as many of you know, um, we often see women getting CBD later on in life. And his explanation for this was just incredible. So that is towards the end of our conversation, probably about an hour or so into our conversation we get there. And then we talked about the ketogenic diet and we were sort of mind melding and I shared with him my approach, my sexually dimorphic approach to the ketogenic diet really. So how I apply keto to women and how that's different for how I would apply it to a male. And then we talked about his breath analyzer tool, uh, formerly called Keto, now it is referred to as Key Eats, and talked about the uh, how easy it is to use. And I'm a really big fan, so I'll also put a link to where to buy it in the show notes as well. Overall, this conversation was wonderfully done. I thought he did such a good uh, such a good job at explaining things. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ethan Weiss. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in 
your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am very excited about our conversation and I'm excited about the breadth and the depth of our discussion today because we are going to hopefully unpack for people what we really should be focusing on when it comes to heart health and when we think about things that can be prophylactic as we go through our lives in, in terms of having a healthy heart and what some of the parameters like cholesterol LDL, LP little a, all these funny letters, what they all mean. Good. Well, if we sort this out, then we'll have done a great thing. (laughs) And it's funny because the number one question that I get when I'm either talking about keto, you know, on stage or I'm prescribing it for a patient is the C word. It's the cholesterol question, right? Like if I eat keto, aren't I going to clog up my arteries or aren't I going to have a heart attack or some variation of that concern. And I wanted to go directly to the source, which is you, the cardiologist, the expert in the field, so that we can like kind of have a bit of a crash course in lipidology for people um, so that we can really understand what cholesterol actually does, what LDL, all the different components of what goes into looking at LDL is. So, And I have some clinical observations and stuff I kind of want to bounce off you too. Great. I'm excited. All right. Good. So let's start, let's just start off with you professionally. You know, how did you get into or onto the path of cardiology? Is that something that you knew you wanted to start off with, you know, from a, from a little boy? Is that something that you saw and wanted to aspire to? Where did, where did that come about for you? No, I, uh, (laughs) I, well, I mean, the short version of a very long story is that my dad is still a practicing cardiologist. And so I grew up in the home of a cardiologist. And I think both because of uh, sort of a lack of aptitude for science and interest in doing what my dad was doing, I sort of veered away from it. So I went to college expecting to do anything but medicine, particularly anything but cardiology. Mm. And really, you know, through college to what, you know, young, you know, 18, 19, 20, 20-year-old, people do, which is to sort of think, try on, mentally try on things that I might do or might not do. And I had the fortune of going to a school, a, a college where where science was uh, a little friendlier than it, it could be at other places. And so I had 
took some courses and found that I actually really did enjoy it and that I was pretty good at it. And then I thought, well, this could be a good career for me, but uh, I don't really want to do what my dad's doing. So ultimately I ended up deciding I was going to go to medical school, but really intending to do something completely non-scientific. So I had a very sparse uh, undergraduate science curriculum. Like I took very little, I took one semester of biology. And so I thought I would do something related to public health or maybe psychiatry or something that was not going to be uh, anywhere near what my dad was doing. So that, that's sort of the long, shorter version of a longer story. And if you're about the same age as me, you probably grew up in the high carb, low fat, fat oh, is yeah. the devil, you know, everything is like sugar and carbohydrates. That's all great. But fat, like we don't do that. Yeah, I would say even more so than an average person, obviously, you know, I, so I really right. grew up dad in, is a, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. in in the 1970s and 80s, you know, I was, you know, the McGovern Commission report came out in 1977, I was eight. So, uh, yeah, the, the, our home was full of every kind of carbohydrate you could imagine, complex, simple, everything you could think of, and very little fat, and every fat substitute you could imagine. So I definitely grew up with that message firmly ingrained in my head, which was fat in all sorts of, every kind of fat, uh, unsaturated fat, saturated fat, that it was all bad, and that you could eat carbohydrate uh, as much as you wanted to, and it wouldn't affect your heart health or your metabolic health or anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is dad still practicing now? He is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think he probably is ever slightly confused about what I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. So my dad still goes to work every day. He's, you know, full time. He's on the faculty uh, at Johns Hopkins where he's been since 1973 and um, very clinically active. Uh, but we leave each other kind of alone when it comes to uh, what we do. So right, right, got it. Okay, let's let's dive into this little crash course on lipidology because I and we'll start with the c word. We'll start with cholesterol because I think this and maybe LDL, the two most demonized potentially molecules or substances in in the body. So, what is cholesterol? What is the function of cholesterol in the body? Right. So cholesterol is a, um, it's a waxy substance. It's basically necessary for all living cells. Uh, it's part of the, the membrane, the sort of sac that keeps the cell together. It's important as a signaling molecule. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fundamentally important molecule or yeah, molecule in biology. It happens to come in different sizes. Uh, and the way it's described is based on the size or the weight of the of the molecule mm-hmm. and in the old days they used to measure that by sticking basically by spinning down a tube of um, of blood or plasma in a centrifuge so a very high highly uh very rapid spinning thing and so the heavier the uh, molecule was the the farther it would come down in this centrifuge and so that was mm-hmm. sort of how they had initially identified these different fractions of cholesterol and they did that based on the density, based on their mass. Uh, and so early, early on in this field, so there for a long time, there had been a very strong association between the total amount of cholesterol in one's blood and risk of developing cardiovascular disease, specifically blockages of the arteries and subsequently heart attack. So that association was described. And then once you could further delineate between the different kinds of sizes of, uh, of cholesterol, there came this sort of notion that there were really two forms of cholesterol, what people call low density lipoprotein and uh, and then the higher density lipoprotein and 
Uh, so LDL and HDL. And for the longest time, through the time that I was a medical student and a resident and up until probably, you know, within the past 10 years, we called LDL bad cholesterol. We called HDL good cholesterol. And so there was, yep. again, very strong association, yep. association between people who had high HDL and lower risk of disease and people who had high LDL and a higher risk of disease. So that's the uh, sort of brief history. There's a lot more to it, obviously, and we can get into more detail if you want. Sure. And I, the only thing I would add to that is when we think about cholesterol, it's also a precursor to some really important things like our sex hormones, sure. you know, cortisol. And for women, we think about progesterone and then for men and women, estrogen and testosterone. And for me, I work a lot in the you know, metabolic space and neuromusculoskeletal uh, space. And when we think about the brain and the central nervous system, it's a structural element of the brain and, and the CNS. And um, we can come back to this, but um, the, there's been a couple of observational studies that I found really interesting where when we think about brain health, so we think about dementia, we think about Alzheimer's or even mental health like you know depression, there's been in elderly populations a positive corollary with the higher your cholesterol number or your LDL or your cholesterol number in general, uh, but specifically your LDL, we see uh, better outcomes with those, uh, with those mental health and those uh, disease states. So we'll, we'll just kind of pin that and, um, and come back sure. to it. But I love what you're saying around the total cholesterol and how that was a standard because I, I still see that today. So sometimes I'll be co-managing a patient and the patient will come back and say, well, my total cholesterol is over 200. And so, you know, my doctor has now this and, you know, there's whatever standard of care the, the, the primary is trying to follow. And I really like and respect your work because I think what I have heard from you when I've heard you speak, when I've heard you on different podcasts and different mediums is that you talk about this idea of context, which when we look at total cholesterol, yeah, it's an important number, but it's also important contextually when you're looking at HDL to LDL ratios or triglyceride to HDL ratios or non-HDL cholesterol, like just kind of looking at that as a as a, as a marker. Is that something that, does that resonate with you? My, is that yeah, right there? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think like I was trying to sort of say earlier, we've gotten more refined in our ability to, to differentiate you know, cholesterol is not a monolithic thing. It's many hundreds of things. And so yes. the question is, which of these things is harmful, which is helpful, you know, and, and we've begun to unpack that even more, right? I mean, the initial movement was from looking at total cholesterol to looking at the, you know, sort of basic fractions of LDL and HDL. Yeah. We've now become even more detailed and refined in our understanding. And I think, uh, you know, we have a better understanding of what the real risky particles are and which ones may be less risky. I think we still have a lot to learn and we have a lot to learn about how modulating cholesterol either through diet or other lifestyle interventions or through medicines, how that affects risk. And so I think we're still sort of putting together all the pieces of the puzzle. And I try to remind people all the time that we have to stay humble about what we know, what we don't know here. I think uh, there's a gigantic body of evidence uh, that we should not ignore, but I think uh, we, we context is, is important. Yeah. 
So let's with that, let's open mm-hmm. up Pandora's box on on LDLs. So you talked about refinement in terms of uh, looking at LDL, uh, looking at cholesterols. I'm assuming you're talking about in part LDL. So I'd like to have uh, a discussion on what it is, what it does in the body. And then I'd, I'd love for you, if you can, to also tie in a little bit of how it interacts with, with, with the immune system as well. Yeah, I think, uh, so I want to be careful. So w- one thing to remember is that LDL levels in almost any other animal I can think of uh, are extremely low. So modern humans are sort of an exception in that we have relatively high circulation circulating levels of LDL, of LDL cholesterol, low-density mm-hmm. lipoprotein. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is also important to remember that when we talk about LDL, we're usually not talking about LDL. So we're, uh, there is a way to measure LDL directly, both sort of total LDL, but also all the different fractions of LDL. Mm-hmm. But mostly, I would say 95% of people who talk about LDL are talking about it, a number that's been calculated from another number because the average lipid profile that people get in the doctor's office doesn't actually measure direct LDL. So, right. uh, so I think... Uh, Look, we're dealing with uh, lots and lots of different sources of information, whether it's epidemiology, animal models, you know, cell, cells and tissue, cell culture, you know, tissue culture, uh, drug trials, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. I think uh, there is an argument out there about what the function, the physiological function of LDL is and should be. I think it's, uh, you know, it's there to carry around different uh, lipids from different tissues, you know, from one tissue to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the level of LDL that we see in, you know, the 21st century in human beings who are eating uh, modern diets is, is unprecedented in terms of what we've seen in other animals um, or in, uh, in what I would expect humans who don't eat the diets that we eat, what that would look like. So, right. Um, I know beavers I, don't have Uber Eats, unfortunately. Like that's right. Have, no, you know? no. <laughs> right. No, but it was actually always hard for me when I first got into science. You know, we were, I was working a lot in mouse models and, and mice have very little, almost no LDL. It's very difficult to give a mouse atherosclerosis. You actually have to cross it onto a different genetic background where they're missing the LDL receptor so that mm-hmm. the molecule that's there to, to actually react to LDL and you have to put them on this crazy diet. So uh, most animals in the wild don't have high LDL. Most animals in the wild also don't have blocked arteries. So uh, I think that's part of the reason why people honed in on the association because, because, you know, there were all these lines of evidence suggesting it was a problem. Uh, right. The, the immune function business of LDL is interesting. I think uh, there's a lot of interest and I'm no, no expert at all, but there's a lot of interest about what different lipoproteins, whether it's LDL or it's HDL or some work, a colleague of mine here at UCSF work is doing on malaria and HDL. And there are all kinds of questions about the interaction between the immune system and these different lipoproteins and whether they may be serving a purpose other than just shuttling around different fats uh, from you know one cell type or one tissue to another. It's, it's not an, air, an area of expertise of mine at all. I will say this, that the, um, the various lines of evidence that I pay the most attention to, whether that's a, you know, drug trials or genetic, human genetic studies, don't seem to suggest any relation, real relationship between um, changes in lipoprotein levels and risk of infections as, as you know, much as we can tell at least now 40 years into it. Right. Okay. So let's, let's double click on the differences. When we look at LDL, we're looking at LDL cholesterol, which is separate and distinct from particle number. 
And then I also want to talk a little bit about size. So particle size. So there's, we, we can differentiate LDLs. Let's start, maybe start with the size. Like we can differentiate LDLs by there's like big floofy ones and then there's kind of smaller dense ones, correct? That's right. Yeah. So a colleague and friend of mine described that, that if you ran these, you know, LDL out on a gel um, that would separate the different particles by size that you could see this gradient of very small, denser particles. And then there were also higher, uh, sorry, bigger and fluffier particles. Um, so you could sort of um, assign a sort of pattern to whether you had sort of more smaller, denser particles, or if you had more larger, fluffier particles. And that was shown to be associated with risk of cardiovascular disease. So people who had what, what was termed pattern A, which was the larger, predominantly larger, fluffier, fewer of the denser, smaller ones, those people had less risk of disease, whereas people who had pattern B, which was sort of the, uh, you know, smaller, more smaller, denser ones and less big, fluffy ones, those people seem to have an increased risk of disease. So that was the, and that was published in the 1980s. He then went on to show that that pattern was determined in large part by the types of foods that you ate, the, uh, that it looked like people with pattern B tended to eat, tended to eat more foods that were higher in carbohydrate, lower in fat. And the opposite was true in people who ate high fat and low carb diets was that they tended to have more, you know, pattern A type um, particles. Yeah. And that's, you just, you just answered my next question. So this is, you know, I think we're talking about Dr. Ron Krauss here. Mm -hmm. So for me, my, my next obvious question, which you have thankfully uh, just answered is, can we manipulate, can we change the macronutrient composition of the diet and in effect, uh, change and manipulate the LDL particle size. So if I'm summarizing what you're saying, uh, and, I, and I believe the, the uh, we'll link to this in the, in the show notes, uh, it was, uh, his study looked at a, um, it was a 40% conversion from pattern A to pattern B. So he was giving them a high carbohydrate, low fat diet, and was noticing that the LDL size was going from this large, fluffy, bigger, uh, uh, particle size to that more smaller, denser particle size. And the problem with that is that when you get uh, those smaller particles, those smaller LDL particles can infiltrate the endothelial lining and then sort of run amok within there and cause all sorts of inflammation and starting that atherogenic and that plaque formation. Yes? Maybe. Maybe. That, that, so, so you're absolutely right that what you described is exactly what Ron published over the years. And I think he did show that there was a very strong association between diet composition, macronutrient composition, and the pattern that you had. What he's mm -hmm. not shown, and what has, to my knowledge, not been demonstrated, is that even though you can manipulate the size of your lipoprotein particles, or you can manipulate the pattern, uh, and that these patterns are associated with risk of disease, he's never shown, no one else to my knowledge has ever shown, that doing so changes your risk of disease. And in fact, I think Ron feels, uh, while Ron has worked hard in his career to undemonize fat and, and was struck by these strong associations between you know, diet and, and the effect on lipoproteins, I think Ron's the first one to admit that uh, we haven't yet connected the dots and shown that even though we can change 
the pattern that that also reduces the risk. So that's that's something that remains to be shown. The other mm-hmm. thing I think that's missing from this conversation is this discussion of of the mechanism of why small dense particles might be associated with risk and large fluffy ones aren't. And and I think somewhere and someone along the line had made this argument that it's about you know that these smaller particles therefore have an easier time of getting into the arterial wall. To my knowledge, that's not been shown. That, that, that's a fable. And, uh, and it's taken root in you know, online forums of people just discussing and describing this. But Ron does not believe that. And in fact, I think Ron asked him directly, if large fluffy particles are protective or just not as harmful as small dense particles. And mm-hmm. his answer to me was, no, we haven't shown that. But even beyond that, we just we don't even know well all we still have right now is an association so we don't have right a proof showing that these smaller particles are actually causing harm we just know that they're associated with harm so we get we get into this trouble i think sometimes in this field and we did it with htl where we take these very strong associations and imply or infer causality and uh, so hdl is the perfect you know example where we had said forever hdl is good cholesterol because it's associated with lower risk of disease well it turns out that hdl itself is not reducing the risk of disease it seems to be an intermediary and not itself a factor in actually reducing the risk of disease so i think we have to be a little bit careful uh, to make sure we know what we're talking about when it comes to actually uh, assigning causality to any one factor Yeah, yeah, agreed. And do you, so is there in your expertise or in your opinion, do we know that whether or not those smaller, denser LDLs, are they more prone to oxidation than the larger ones? Or that's just a question mark? Yeah, I mean, the whole oxidized LDL field, you know, was t- took off in the 1970s, I believe, with um, Dan Steinberg and a bunch of other people, famous lipidologists, uh, and again, it was all association at the time, a strong enough association that a bunch of drug companies actually went after oxidized LDL as a drug target. In fact, I know of Genentech as one uh, that they had developed a program. They were going to try and develop a molecule that was going to specifically target and reduce the amount of oxidized lipoproteins. The idea being that the longer a particle sits around in the blood, the more time it has to become damaged or oxidized, and that that, dam- that oxidized or damaged particle can wreak havoc more in terms of either inducing an immune response or something else that would sort of cause more damage to the, to the vessel wall. Right. Uh, that program failed. It's not clear exactly whether that was just because it was a bad drug or whether the hypothesis is wrong, but there's still, I think, a sort of unconnected set of dots around even just oxidized lipoproteins in general. It's still, I think, at the level of, hey, it's a, it's a sign. It looks like it's a risk factor. We don't know yet the mechanism of how that might work. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I don't know of any data that smaller denser particles are more easily oxidizable. Uh, and I'm not even, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. And that's a fair answer. And I appreciate your honesty. And this is what this is about, right? You're teaching me, yeah. I'm learning things as well. So this is awesome. Let's talk a little bit about LP little a. So this is, um, from what my understanding is, is that this is highly correlated, you know, not causative, but highly correlated with coronary artery disease, these atherogenic tendencies, and it doesn't seem to be really moved by di- diet or exercise. So we always talk about like lifestyle modifications to help with our, with our CBD risk, but this little rascal doesn't seem to be influenced by that. So can we talk about what LP little a is, uh, 
you know, I know that it's not standard on most lipid panels like you have to ask for it, but why is it something that we need to be paying attention to in your opinion? Yeah. In terms of what it is, it's a good question. I, I'm probably not the best person to explain it. It's another one of these, what are called apolipoproteins. This mm-hmm. one's called apolipoprotein A, um, little a. Uh, and it's um, recently discovered, I think, uh, recently meaning within the last 20 years, as opposed mm-hmm. to you know LDL, which was really discovered in the 50s and 60s. So, uh, and it's been shown to be strongly associated with risk of cardiovascular event, of coronary disease and risk of cardiovascular events. So people with higher LP little a have an increased risk of having events. And what's been striking about it is that it, it's um, not linked to the level of LDL cholesterol. So you can have a normal LDL cholesterol and a high LP little a and still have a high risk of events. Uh, and uh, it, as you mentioned, is not influenced by by typical lifestyle uh, uh, in, uh, interventions like diet or exercise. I think I've heard anecdotes of people being able to move their LP little a on certain diets. To my knowledge, though, it's very strongly genetically controlled. So it's uh, it's one of these diseases. I believe Anahato Connor, who's a fantastic health reporter for the New York Times, wrote about it four or five years ago and uh, basically described these families of people who had early and aggressive coronary artery disease and events and uh, and normal LDL cholesterol, no other apparent risk factors. And so that got sort of a lot of attention for this little bugger, as you call it. And mm-hmm. it's now starting to appear sort of on more um, routine screening tests, I guess, or if you find somebody with a lot with significant coronary disease and their LDL is not elevated, you look at LP little a as one of the sort of one of the first things to look at uh, as, as an alternative. Um, so yeah, it's a new ish uh, thing that I certainly didn't order much before five or six years ago. And I now ordered at least once routinely on every patient that I see. Um, yeah. And what about, uh, there's been some reports on niacin or nicotinic acid on its ability to move LP little a, is that yeah. again, just anecdotal, observational? Yeah. What? yeah, so you're absolutely right. Niacin definitely reduces LP little a. It's such a great example though of sometimes moving a marker in the direction you want it to move doesn't necessarily have the outcome that you want it to have. And what I'm saying is that based on, I think now three large randomized controlled trials looking at the effect of niacin, on cardiovascular risk, and uh, it's been negative, neutral, or maybe even somewhat harmful. And you know, again, you can say, well, the trials were not designed well, or they didn't use the right dose, or this or that or that. Um, the reality is, I think when you get to three years, sort of out in my mind. So I think most people now yeah. don't use niacin for for cardiovascular risk reduction. It does remarkably have great effects on the lipid profile, all the things move in the directions you'd want them to, including LP little, LP little a. So where we are with LP little a today is that as opposed to LDL, where I think we have, you know, sort of, if you think about all the different lines of evidence, right, starting with the epidemiology. So showing that people with high LDL cholesterol have an increased risk of disease. Same is true for LP little a. So we have epidemiology supporting it. We have good animal data, I think, um, both for LDL and LP little a. The human genetics are also strong, right? So if you have a um, series of genetic uh, changes that would influence your level of LDL cholesterol, those changes uh, you have for life and the higher your LDL, your genetically programmed LDL cholesterol, you're the higher your risk of cardiovascular disease. Same is true for LP little a. The difference is now we have, you know, three different classes of medicines that at least somewhat specifically reduce LDL cholesterol. 
uh, in drug trials that have been tested now over 40 years in people with, with different levels of risk for, for heart attack. And all three of those classes have been shown to reduce the risk of heart attack. What we're still missing in the LP little a world is that drug trial. So we, we know that there are some drugs that will reduce LP little a. One of them you mentioned is nice. And the other one are these newer cholesterol lowering medicines called PCSK9 inhibitors. Mm-hmm. The two ones are, are uh, Praluent and Merpatha. And those are thought to reduce LP little a by about 30% on average. Obviously, any one individual may have a bigger effect and some have none. And so there's a lot of attention to whether that reduction is meaningful, independent of whatever other benefits those drugs might have. And then lastly, there are companies that are working on specific drugs to target LP little a and LP little a only. And those trials are ongoing. And so we don't have the answers yet. But right now, I think we have um, a strong suggestion that if you can get your LP little a to go down, uh, that would be a good thing. But the caution, of course, is the niacin story, which was an example where it doesn't seem to line up. Right. And the last one I want to ask you about is uh, a coronary artery calcium score. Um, What is it? What are we looking at? And what is its significance? Right. So uh, back in the early part of the the 20th century, doctors were able to recognize that uh, if you did an x-ray, you could see... um, certain things that were that would block the x-rays we call them, you know we call it being radio opaque and they noticed that there was there were outlines of what looked like radio opacities in a distribution that looked like arteries in the heart coronary arteries mm-hmm. um, i think this is probably where the term hardening of the arteries was well i don't know if it was born there but it certainly it makes sense so um, and then with autopsies it was clear that there was a strong association there between what looked like uh, this radio opaque uh, substance in the artery and and what was then found to be blocked arteries. So it turns out that substance is calcium. Calcium is a mineral and it's opaque. It blocks x-rays. And, uh, and so it was- Which is why we know, see bones. They appear right. white, right? On the x-ray, just yeah. for the listener. Yeah. So go yeah. on. And, and yeah, and the artery actually is basically looks, shows up on an x-ray like it would, like a bone, but you don't, you're not supposed to have a bone in the middle of your heart. So- yeah. So, uh, and you shouldn't have calcium there. So it turns out that um, that was sort of pathologists and radiologists got together and kind of figured out that there's this strong association there between the amount of blockages and the amount of calcium that's in the arteries and that you could see that on the x-ray. And then this radiologist who I believe is based in Houston named Arthur Agustin figured out that if you did a very low dose CT scan, that you could measure the amount of calcium in the entire coronary artery tree and quantify it and uh, you assign it a score that would go anywhere from zero up to several thousand. And so he and colleagues started doing that in people, I believe in the early 1970s, and then continued to do it over the course of the past 40 or 50 years. And, uh, and it turns out that that score that you get, which is reflective of how much calcium is in the artery, in your heart arteries, is very strongly associated with risk of, vas- of these cardiovascular events, so heart attacks, uh, and similar type events. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned now is that calcium, I think it, this is the important distinction that sometimes people get confused by. Calcium itself is not causing problems in the arteries, mm-hmm. at least not significant problems. Calcium is a marker of there being a problem in the artery. It's basically like somebody 
is digging around looking for places where there, you know, is, um, you know, toxic soil and they plant a flag. So basically calcium is the flag that, hey, look, there's been damage, there's blocked arteries here. And, uh, and so we know that if you do this in people that the higher the calcium score, the higher the risk of disease. So now calcium scores uh, have become more and more standard in practice and we use them for various different things. And one of the things we use them for today is to help guide decision-making over how aggressive to be with risk modification, whether that's with you know, lifestyle or with medical therapy. And, uh, and that's, I think, the primary use case for calcium scans as of today. And, and supported by recent documents from American Heart Association, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think about clinically what we're looking for, so somebody who is under 40 years old, we should have a CAC score of? Zero. Zero. Right. And, and in fact, I'll just say, I think in... It, except in very unusual cases, say somebody who's got a very strong family history or mm-hmm. very abnormal risk factor profile mm-hmm. or some other compelling reason, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do calcium scans in people who are under 40. Because again, if you look at the distribution of what the um, score should be in young people under 40, it, it should be zero. And so it's not very useful, that test. Because if it's zero, it doesn't really help you. It doesn't tell you that the person has low risk. Now, if it's positive in somebody who's under 40, it can be extremely helpful. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But that happens, like I say, very un- infrequently. And so the standard is that you do this only in people with where you have some reason to be concerned beyond just an average person who wants to know what their risk is. And I would say maybe also the reverse is also true. If you saw in a 70-year-old, you know, a score of zero. That's also very telling absolutely. as well. Yeah. Abs- abs- absolutely. So just exactly as you said. So in older people where there should be calcium, if you look at the distribution averages across the population, if you see zero in somebody who's 75 or 80, that's extremely, extremely compelling and, and very reassuring. Mm-hmm. And so I, I use the calcium scan in those two sets of people predominantly, right? So in younger people where they have more calcium than they should or in older people where they have a lot less or none. And that is one of the sort of core areas I think that can be uh, even now accepted by mainstream cardiologists to say, if you have an older person who has a high, you know, who has significant risk factors, call it, you know, LDL cholesterol, whatever it is that's, that's worrisome. If their calcium score is zero, then, then you can somewhat safely decide that you don't need to, to be as aggressive with medical therapy. Right. And do we know what caused, so there's a plaque format. Do we know why? Is it the plaque that's calcifying? What is, what is the, how is it getting to calcium? Do yeah. You know I mean, that I, process is? I don't know the exact molecular mechanism, but my understanding has always been that it's part of the sort of wound healing process. So, yeah. um, and so when inflammatory cells infiltrate the plaque, uh, you know, macrophages, monocytes and other inflammatory cells that they, Part of the, the process, yeah. yeah. Part of yeah. the process is is uh, is that you end up depositing calcium there. But but again, it's really a marker of of disease as opposed to a disease causing agent itself. It's not it's not now that's not entirely true. There are times where having a very calcified plaque can be a problem, uh, but but that's not the rule. That's the exception. You know what it reminds me of, and this might not be related to it at all, but I have seen you know, in my 16 years of practice, maybe 30, 35 cases of uh, myositis ossificans, which is just 
ossification of muscle. So there's been some sort of trauma or insult, usually soccer players or rugby players. Those are the guys that would come in. And within like, we take an x-ray, call it two to six weeks post injury. And we would start to see soft tissue calcification and don't, don't understand the mechanism why it's calcifying. But my very basic understanding of the process is that the, you know, the bone is undergoing some sort of injury. There's an inflammatory process. And then there's an incorrect uh, uh, differentiation of the fibroblast and the muscle to an osteoblast. So the, the, the precursor to the muscle cell is now going to form, it's going to turn into bone and uh, always in the thigh, sometimes in the arm. Uh, That's almost, interesting. Yeah. So I wonder, and, and actually uh, I will say, and I don't, this is just like a mind meld with you. Uh, what I have found is when we do, uh, you know, a family history, when we look at family history, there's usually something uh, with CBD or bleeding disorders. Hmm. So there's been some like, is it a hematoma? Is it, you know, what is the, what is the mechanism of action? So I don't know if those two processes are in some way related, but we see this um, in, in, in my field of work where we'll see literally muscles will ossify, which is really fun for rehab because they can't, you know, they don't have any range of motion, but. um, Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. mm -hmm. So let's, so you're you know, preventative cardiologist. Mm -hmm. What are, so we've talked about a couple of labs. We've talked about cholesterol or we've talked about the concepts of cholesterol and LDL and LP little a. If I was a patient coming to you for the first time, what would be your favorite labs to order and potentially monitor over time? And do you have ranges in terms of what you like to see on each of those, for each of those data points? Yes. Uh, but the answer is going to be different depending on who you are. And uh, the answer to all the questions is going to be different depending on, on who you are. So if you're a 25-year-old woman with zero cardiovascular risk, no family history, I'm probably not going to do a whole lot other than just get a regular old lipid profile, make sure your blood pressure is okay, take a good family history and go on from there. Mm-hmm. The story would be a lot different if you come in, obviously, you know, I guess for the most part, we're talking about primary prevention, so not people who've already had heart attacks. So if as the risk goes up, the level of attention I pay to different things goes up as well. And so I start to um, delve in and and ask questions, more and more questions. So I think we could take like a few example patients and kind of go through how I would approach it if you want. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Uh, all right. Well, so maybe let's start with like the typical patient that I would see, which would be a, you know, 45 to 55 year old man, let's say with a family history and an abnormal, uh, an abnormally high LDL cholesterol. Let's say his LDL cholesterol, he comes in because his LDL cholesterol is 150, 160, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and often the question is, should I be on a statin? Uh, and because my doctor says I should be. So at 45 to 55, as we went back and talked a little bit about the you know, calcium scan, the, a negative calcium scan is not entirely as reassuring as it would be at you know, 70, 80 and beyond. So I probably would in somebody who's had a high-ish LDL cholesterol for uh, a long time, I probably would do a calcium scan at that stage. There the amount of radiation that you get is rel- is relatively low. And so mm-hmm. I think the risk is low. Uh, they're also relatively cheap. Uh, X-rays get a bad rap. Like there's not that much. <laughs> right. I don't know why yeah. that persists. Like we're talking about 
you know, under 10 millisieverts. I mean, there's not that much. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So, um, and then in addition to the standard lipid profile, which he already came to me with, I probably would get an LP little a. Uh, I would probably, so I guess I didn't mention before, but I would mention now. So we sort of touched on the idea that LDL cholesterol is, um, while we talk about it all the time, it's really not the number that any of us pays attention to anymore directly. And so the, the three things that I look at clinically are the three things that have been validated to be most predictive of risk in big populations of people. So one of them is actually what you, I think, mentioned earlier, non-HDL cholesterol. Yes. So Yes. That's just a simple calculation that anyone can make. You take the total cholesterol, subtract out the HDL. The reason for that is that all of the scary particles are contained in that uh, leftover, whatever's left over from HDL. So um, the LDL particles, the LP little a and the triglyceride rich lipoprotein. So all of that basically is left over. So we know in population studies that high non-HDL cholesterol is strongly associated as a better predictor of risk than say LDL cholesterol, which is calculated. Um, the other two numbers that most people now I think are paying attention to in detail are apolipoprotein B, so APOB. Mm-hmm. APOB is a lipoprotein that carries around different kinds of cholesterol. It's on all of the LDL particles uh, and you can measure it directly and it's relatively cheap. I think it's like 15 bucks. And so APOB I think is... Uh, is the gold standard according to most people. Non-HDL is sort of the silver standard. It's pretty good. It correlates in roughly 80% of people. It's very strongly sort of linked. There are some people where there's discordance between non-HDL cholesterol and, and ApoB. Um, if there's concordance and there are no other significant changes, then I think it's fine to measure the uh, non-HDL after you've shown that there's concordance. But I would usually measure ApoB once. In, mm-hmm. in a new patient with risk. And then the last one that's sort of in that same pot with non-HDL and ApoB is the LDL particle number. Right. Not the size, but the particle number. And that's just, again, the total number of particles that contain this one molecule, apolipoprotein B, mm-hmm. uh, which is thought to be one of the sort of big uh, offenders in terms of risk. So that one, I think, uh, dep- is more expensive. And depending on, you know, what the financial situation is, insurance, et cetera, et cetera, that one I do or I don't measure. I don't routinely now measure uh, the size of LDL particles uh, by any method, except in patients who uh, are doing something unusual with their diet, like either a very low carb, high fat diet or the opposite, Mm -hmm. and they want to see what the effect is. And so I, um, I, it's certainly not a routine thing that I measure in, in everybody anymore, mainly just because it's expensive. 
And you can also kind of approximate it, right? You can sort of look at t- triglycerides to HDL you and can. sort of, you know, if it's, I think it's 3.8 or if the ratio is 3.8 or around four, you can say, well, you're probably, it kind of looks like it's highly associated or highly with high confidence. You can say this is sort of a pattern B. Or That's other- right. And, and it's also associated with other things that are, you know, part of the metabolic syndrome, be it, uh, you know, high fasting insulin, you know, mm-hmm. impaired, uh, impaired fasting glucose, uh, increased yeah. abdominal adiposity, high waist to hip ratio, um, increased liver function tests, so AST and ALT, mm-hmm. indicative of, of, you know, fatty liver disease. I think mm-hmm. all those things kind of point in the same direction. It's basically all part of this sort of metabolic derangement. So you don't need it. You absolutely do not need it. And again, it hasn't really been shown yet to be important in guiding therapy. We, we know that it's associated with different levels of risk, but we haven't shown that it actually is important in guiding therapy. Right. And what about inflammatory markers? Do you, do you parse that with, yeah. you know, an HC, HSCRP, glycation, or um, pardon me, HbA1c? Yeah. So I will measure HSCRP as a, you know, as a marker of whole body inflammation. Mm-hmm. It's also been shown to be an important risk factor in coronary disease, independent of LDL or any other cardiovascular risk marker. So I do measure that. Um, usually if it's low, I leave it alone and probably won't follow it very much unless something changes. If it's high, I confirm that it's high because it's real and uh, not because somebody has an infection or they have something else that sort of mm-hmm. chronic inflammation. Um, I also, because I'm interested in metabolism so much, will try to, as long as it's paid for, measure fasting insulin and glucose, and I will measure a hemoglobin A1C just to kind of get an overall picture of the of metabolic health. And and I mentioned this before, and I'll say it: I I routinely in my patients, even as a cardiologist, do measure a liver function test, not because I want to figure out the effect of statins or other drugs on the liver, but because I want to screen for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. And I love that you said fasting glucose because I love fasting glucose with a postprandial glucose challenge as well. So that gives you, you know, HbA1c, just for the listener, for a review, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's basically your average or your mean uh, glycated hemoglobin over the past two or three months, right? So this is when we have sugar that's bonding to either a protein or a lipid. And... Um, Kind of to your when I when I hear you talk, you talk about context a lot, and it's a you know that's a mean, it's an average, but it doesn't tell you the glucose insulin dance, right? So the fasting glucose, like you said, is really wonderful to have an understanding of what happens, uh, you know, after sixteen hours or twenty four hours or what, however long uh, you're, or even just an eight hour fast, what's happening. Um, in the post-absorptive uh, post-absorptive state, but I also want to know what happens when they eat. So two hours after they've eaten, is their is their blood glucose now under 120 milligrams per deciliter? Because that's I'm good with that. But if it's 140 or it's higher or it's higher than that, you know, I'm starting to think, okay, there's 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 something the mechanistically with that you know with that dance that glucose insulin dance that's that's discordant. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you're seeing them up in uh, in Canada, but we're, I have a lot of patients who come to me with wearing continuous glucose with monitors CGMs, without diabetes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've written some prescriptions for people as well, uh, and so that's where you really do get much more granular detail about the what you're describing about the dance, uh, and much 
much more sort of detailed information than you would get from an A1C or just a single yeah. point, you know, fasting glucose. Yeah. Yeah. You had, in preparation for our conversation, I was listening to an interview that you had with uh, Peter Atia on his podcast. Uh-huh. And you were talking about coronary artery disease and there was, it was wonderful. I was like, oh, Q waves, let's just nerd out and let's just learn about all this stuff. It was great. Uh, (laughs) So I really enjoyed it. But there was a point about two hours into the conversation where you said something and I said, okay, I have to make sure that we talk about this when you come on my podcast, which Uh was, it was this really interesting, it's not, it's not bad. (laughs) It was, um, you were talking about how men and women behave differently clinically and biologically. So the, for context, for the listener, you guys were talking about cardiovascular disease and you know, it's the number one killer, right? Men and women. women th- we think that you know, breast cancers are not, it's not, it's, CV, it's, heart, it's heart disease. And I can't remember if you or Peter had said it, you know, there's this phase shift where women get it. Women tend to get cardiovascular disease you know, somewhere between seven to 12 years later than the typical mean average of our male counterparts. And when you said that, I was like, oh, that's because of estrogen. That's because, you know, we go through, you know, menopause and we lose the estrogen and then our CHD, you know, our coronary risk factors go up. But you were talking about the sexually dimorphic liver. Can you, and maybe I misunderstood it. So can you just explain what you were talking about when you were or just double click a little bit on what you meant by men and women have differences in terms of the you know distribution. Yeah, uh, it was a three-hour conversation. I commend yeah. you for making it all the way through. Um, <laughs> so I think the what you described just now is something that was you know I was a medical student was dogma, which is that you know we have this frame shift, this phase shift, and risk between men and women, and everybody made the assumption that you made, which was that oh it's just all related to sex hormones. When women go through menopause, their estrogen goes down, progesterone goes down, and that's that mediates this risk. And we knew from epidemiology and actually from some animal models that estrogen had very positive effects on risk factors. So it raises HDL, lowers LDL. And so the assumption always was, well, this is just a sex hormone thing. Yeah. And there were a series of trials done. The biggest one was the, the HERS trial. And that was published, I believe, in uh, 1998. Uh, and the purpose of that study was to ask the question, if you take postmenopausal women, randomize them to get either a placebo or to get uh, hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. what happens to their cardiovascular risk? And at the end of that trial, there was a big surprise and that was, and it's in, interpreted differently by different people, but the, basically the s- simplest, safest interpretation of the trial was that there was no effect. That you couldn't move the needle that yes, women do increase their risk of coronary disease or cardiovascular disease over time. But adding back hormone replacement therapy doesn't help that. Now, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of arguing since that trial was published 22 years ago in the field about what was wrong with that trial and whether it was you know, the wrong dose or wrong delivery, whether it should have been transdermal. I mean, there are all kinds of different questions about what it was. But um, I think you know, for me at the time, it was a surprise and a caution. Uh, what I was talking about with Peter was was more a story about how I got interested in trying to understand the biology of sex differences. And at that time in my life, I was focused, my research was focused on trying to understand uh, 
different mechanisms of blood clotting. And blood clotting factors are mostly made or modified in the liver. And so uh, there was this very interesting sort of observation that males and females of many different species, including humans, have dramatically different levels of gene expression in their liver, like hundredfold difference. And it makes sense, right? Because why would I need an estrogen sulfotransferase? Because I don't really have a lot of estrogen. And you know, there are other sex hormones and other sex-specific things where women would need the machinery and men don't and vice versa. And so mm-hmm. uh, it turns out that there's this like long list of very, what's called sexually dimorphic genes. So they're expressed very highly in one sex and not in the other or, or the other yep. way around. Mm-hmm. And the assumption had always been that that was driven also by sex hormones. Uh, but it turns out that it's not. And it's driven by uh, a sort of funny different pattern that men and women have in how growth hormone is secreted from the pituitary gland. And there's been a lot of work in, mostly in rodents showing that if you uh, change to men typically have what's called a more pulsatile secretion pattern. So they, they'll secrete very, very high levels, but they do it infrequently and have a long period of time between the pulses where they have very low or undetectable growth hormone, whereas women have a much more continuous pattern where the pulses are finer but the mean, the mean level is the same, but the, the actual absolute level never really falls down to, to a certain low level. So if you can recapitulate that in animal models, you can basically make a male liver look female by giving it continuous growth hormone. And you can make a female liver look male by giving it pulse-style growth hormone. So that was sort of what I was getting into with Peter was that it turns out that there's this funny little story in biology that uh, I wasn't aware of before about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, about how we can program our cells and tissues, which are basically the same, to act differently in a different environment to help drive the things that you know men need and women need in biology. And that makes sense when you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint too, right? If we have the hunter, which is typically the male, and the gatherer, which was typically the female, you know, he's going to need to have a more viscous, or he's going to need to have more uh, clotting factors, or he's going to need to be able to heal from wounds. Uh, you know, on a more frequent basis than she is because she's at home tending to the children with the with the other women in the tribe. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to start to geek out on some of these, you know, sort of teleological explanations for why things are the way they are. I also am fond to remind my daughters that that in a lot of species, males are really not necessary after they uh, participate in reproduction, they sort of disappear. Um, and it's really just the the women around with the with the uh, with the young, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's not a lot of evolutionary pressure to keep men around. Um, maybe it's why men have a shorter lifespan. Uh, they don't really serve much function uh, after they've reproductive age, whereas women probably are, are more useful. So there are all kinds of different fun games you can play. But yeah, that's the one of the sort of things that I thought. The other one that was interesting to think about is that um, you know in carrying a pregnancy, you have to make modulations in clotting factors to be able to sort of tolerate this foreign thing in your yeah. body and yeah and a part of that is growing a new blood supply to feed it right through the placenta right and so there are some biological reasons why women may have sort of a less finely tuned aggressive clotting system or wound healing system um rather you know compared to men i wonder um if that's all, I wonder if there's something, the cholesterol story comes in here somehow too, because we know for a woman who's pregnant, 
as she goes through each trimester, her LDL cholesterol in particular tends to, uh, tends to increase up to, I think it's up to 50% or something from the beginning to the end of her pregnancy. I wonder if there's some, and that's why I'd asked you about the immune, you know, how like LDL, how it parses with the immune system uh, earlier, because maybe there, I mean, I always think of when I, and this is how I sort of keep things in my head when I think of LDL, it almost is like the security guard that doesn't want to let, you know, the, the hooligans into the club kind of thing. So like the viruses and the bacterias and the parasites, the LDL sort of allows for the, it doesn't allow them to get into the cell and then allows for, you know, presentation to the immune system potentially and, you know, and eventually the immune system to clear it. So I wonder if there's yeah. I mean, there. I, I, don't, I don't know. You're outside my strike zone. I don't. Uh, I I think I just sort of disappeared during immunology in medical school, and I never really <laughs> caught up. Uh, I never figured it all out. So I, I'm. A, it's one thing if I'm going to go back and like retake any course that I'm. I don't missing. want to re-traumatize you, so we can we can move no. on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, this is a good segue to talk about the ketogenic diet and. For me, anyway, I have I have a ketogenic program that I have given to patients in the clinic. I also have a little online nutrition program for women, and I I parse or I I have a different application for keto for men and women, and you know to use you know you and some of the other people in the ketogenic world as examples. When I first started keto, which was probably. Yeah. I don't know, six, six years ago, seven years ago, I was looking at all of the men in the field who were doing it. So there was the Peter Atias of the world. There was the Dom D'Agostinos who would talk about keto and he would, you know, fast for seven days and then punch out 4 billion pounds on, you know, on a, on a, on a bench press. And then there's the Dr. Jason Fungs and the Dr. Don Pompas. There's all these men in this space that have talked about some of these benefits. And I remember you know, five or six years ago when I was really getting into it, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to start doing this stuff too. Like, you know, strong like bull. I can do, I can do it. I did figure competition. I'm strong. I got the mindset. And I remember my first seven day fast and it was like someone forgot to water me. I was like a wilted flower. I looked like I had a pituitary tumor. Like I had, I had Cushing's disease and PCOS you know, and not to go into TMI, you know, I'm, I'm doing this more for the benefit of, of the listeners, but, you know, my menstrual cycle was a gong show for like two or three more cycles after that. After, so, wow. Yeah. So I had, um, and so I, I had chalked it up. I was like, ah, it's probably just like a rough quarter. Maybe I had, you know, more stress. I'll, I'll do it again next quarter. And the same thing happened again. Five days in, I just couldn't, no matter what, I did. I couldn't get my energy up, my sleep. I was, it was, you know, I was an insomniac. And so that has changed the way that I outlay the ketogenic diet for men and women. And especially I talk a lot about fasting. So the way that we want to fast like women and we want to do keto like women, because we are not as much as some of us like to pretend we are like myself, we are not little men, you know, we are not smaller men with more hormones. So I wanted to you know, just share that with you. But also I wanted to understand what your journey for keto has been, because it's very unusual to find a cardiologist who is someone who follows the ketogenic diet. So where did you kind of discover it? What did you first think of it? Where are you with it now? And how does it integrate into clinical practice and, and everyday life for you? 
All right, I'm going to answer all your questions, but I want to hear what your difference is. What's your difference for uh, women and men and uh, oh, when you do keto? Oh, sure. Yeah. So for, uh, for my women, what we, so we all start the same. So men and women, I will always start them off getting them fat adapted. So we do a 70, 20, 10. So we'll do 70% Mm -hmm. fat, 20% protein. And then the remainder is carbohydrates. The carbohydrates are all green leafy vegetables. And then I also give them resistant starches. But then for women, once we've reached a point about six to eight weeks in where they're fat adapted um, and we can see them reliably, you know, being able to metabolically switch to being, being able to produce ketones. I will start to marry the key. I will start to uh, play with the proportions of their macronutrients and sync it up to their menstrual cycle. So the first week, like the bleed week, uh, we will do much more aggressive uh, keto. So we will do the 70, 20, 10, in the week leading up to uh, ovulation, we because we are seeing a rise in testosterone in her cycle there, like leading up to the release of the egg from the follicle, we will up her protein. So it's a high, I'm trying to get her to profit from uh, in terms of lean muscle mass. So we will up her protein. So we might do a 55 uh, or a 60 20. Uh, pardon me. Uh, yeah, we might do like a 50 25 25. And then the and then her luteal phase, then we start carb cycling. So we will do two days on the classic keto, and then a one day where there's a higher carb up, where we will have more root vegetables and more resistant starches. And then the week leading up to her period, so week four, where we see progesterone, you know, peak at the beginning of week four, like day 21, day 22. Uh, we will do higher carbs that week. So that's more of her recovery week. And then I also play with exercise, like we play with exercise protocols in those in those four weeks as well. Wow, that's interesting. And that has been uh, better uh, in terms of weight loss or just they feel better or what's the primary reason that you do it? The primary reason is, so the first, that first part of the keto where it's a 70, 20, 10 until that six or eight week period is usually most women will come to me for weight loss. They want to lose weight or they want to, you know, their brain fog, they can't think. I have a lot of women in perimenopause. But once we get to the period cycling, it's really more about maintenance because one of the things I've found, and I don't know if you have found this, but clinically I find people can start keto but around that three or four week mark, they're just like, I don't know what it is, but I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And they, there's a big fault. There's a big drop off. So the, um, the consistency of the application of keto, when we cycle it in the luteal phase, or when we're very aggressive in week one or week two with, you know, keeping the carbohydrates low allows for the sustainability of keto over the long term. Cause a lot of people will come to me and say, are you really supposed to do keto for forever? And, you know, my answer for women specifically is you're not supposed to be in ketosis forever. You should be in and out of it because we are, I mean, you and I could probably geek out on this forever, but we're, you know, females are much more defensive of our fat stores. We have much higher swings in cortisol. Our leptin sensitivity, you know, is when we compare any, any given range of obesity, we are much more leptin insensitive than our male counterparts are. There's all the, all these other sort of permutations of things. So I find it's the, um, the compliance of the patient when we can sync it up to her period, when we can sync it up to her menstrual cycle, allows her to apply it over time. And it gives her a little bit of a break in that fourth week because she's, you know, we see that she's building an organ, you know, like she's, <laughs> she's building right. like the endometrial lining. So her glucose, um, 
uptake. Like she's using more glucose. She's using more free fatty acids in order to build up the lining. There's more protein uh, utilization. So she actually needs more car- She needs more calories during that week and more carbohydrates. That's fascinating. That's really cool. I haven't thought of it. I mean, it shows you how superficial my knowledge is in this space. There's so much to learn. Yeah, we can, you know, we, we'll have, we can have a, a much longer Good. conversation we'll, we'll, around we'll that. Good, we'll geek out about it. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, my journey was basically, you know, going back to growing up as the son of a cardiologist uh, with this sort of co- communal demonization of fat. I, I didn't, I sort of believed that, that fat was bad. I think one of the things I, uh, that's interesting is if you think about what happened at, after the McGovern Report came out in the 1970s, it, it sort of lumped all fat together. Uh, when really I think what they probably intended to do was to to focus on saturated fat, but but they didn't do that. And of course, because you know if you cut down fat, that by definition, if you're going to keep your calorie intake the same, you're going to replace it with something else. And what happened was that we replaced a lot of our calories with carbohydrates and probably super processed and simple carbohydrates, a lot of added sugar. So I came at this. I remember the Atkins diet craze in the early you know late 1990s, early 2000s. I remember thinking mm-hmm. it was kind of nutty and. Mm-hmm. Uh, Came back to this uh, four or five years ago. I was asked, uh, basically introduced to Verta Health here in San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was asked to join their advisory board. And I thought the results that they saw in their trial were, were fascinating and really compelling. And, you know, all the trial design issues aside, but I thought it was a really compelling intervention and thought, gosh, this is really neat. And I'm excited to learn more. Uh, at the time, I thought the diet itself was kind of, creepy i guess i don't know i just i found uh, i'm just sort of like one of these people who naturally doesn't like doing what everyone else is doing and i thought it was kind of cultish and uh, so i never tried it even it though i was be. kind of it it well, can be yeah it can be <laughs> yeah. yeah there is no doubt there's yeah. a yeah yeah so but uh but at the time i mean i wasn't judging them i just thought i don't feel like doing it. i don't need to do this and right. you know, i was mid 40s and um and you know probably 15, 20 pounds heavier than I had been in college and high school, but didn't, you know, just figured that's what happens. And uh, really the reason that I started doing it was that uh, I was playing around with a um, early prototype for one of these breath sensors to measure that measures acetone, which is one of the ketone bodies. Um, And, and for me, the experience was really kind of all backwards. I, I didn't ever really intend to do keto. I didn't intend to lose weight. I didn't think I needed to lose weight, but I was playing with this device and kind of got gamified. So I started to blow into it and thought, well, I want to get this score to go as high as possible. And lo and behold, next thing I knew, I woke up like two weeks later, I'd lost 10 pounds. And six weeks later, I'd lost 15. And by, you know, that was in March, that was almost exactly two years ago. So by the fall of that year, I would, I was, I weighed like 158 pounds, which I hadn't weighed since I was in, in high school. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, the became kind of convinced that there was something to this. I, I remained fascinated by the behavioral component. I think, you know, the, I always tell people, I think the keto diet or low carb diet is unique in, among diets and that it does offer you the chance to follow a bar, biomarker yeah. in the form of ketones that, that no other yeah. diet does. Mm-hmm. And what that does is tell you how you're doing and it kind of replaces the attention most people put on what they get from their scale every day, which doesn't move very quickly. And I think moves tells you nothing about body nothing. composition, nothing doesn't tell you anything about your muscle mass. Yeah. So ultimately we ended up kind of co-founding this company, uh, that used to be called keto. That's now called key eats with a p- couple of great partners, including a group of people who are based in Toronto. Uh, and, 
and so you know been doing this myself for two years and starting started to think a lot about sort of how you would apply this at, at a large scale to people who initially were hoping to lose weight so that was sort of the first part of the phase of the business was to try and kind of think about how you would scale up an intervention like Verda's. Uh, you know, Verda's basically using a sort of higher touch, more human-based intervention and applying it to people a little bit farther along the illness scale, right? To people with type 2 diabetes, people a little bit more metabolically unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So our question was, could we apply this on a on a bigger scale to people on the healthier side who are just wanting to lose weight and feel better and get all the benefits of of this diet that people uh, seem to feel and that I felt. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I, I love the breath analyzer. Um, I will, and I'm so goddamn competitive. I will do something until my eyes bleed to be number one. <laughs> so I love that we yeah. have like, I have this little group of, uh, of people that we are always kind of seeing who's in the leaderboard. And so it is using in many ways, technology for good, because technology can be, I mean, it's part, you can't kind of get, you can't get away from technology and it can be incredibly addictive. It can have incredibly detrimental effects in terms of productivity and brain health and all these different things. But one of the things I love about the breath and breath analyzer, and we'll put a link in, into the show notes and even things like, you know, the aura ring is you can gamify and you can start to understand and develop more self-agency around how you respond to things. So do you respond well to cashews? I do not respond well to cashews. Those will kick me out of ketosis like nobody's business. So I, I avoid them. Um, or what, you know, when I'm traveling, it's like a little, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, it's like a, a little stick that you just blow into for 10 seconds. And if you eat something in the airport, you know, and then sort of blow uh, 10 minutes, you know, 20 minutes after you finish, you can see, you can see the real time effects of it. So I really, I really do love, uh, love this product so much. Well, thank you. We're, I mean, it's, uh, it's been a really fun adventure to do this. And I think to think about, uh, you know, using, like you say, using technology for something good, uh, we all, you know, as the parent of two teenage daughters, I, I see the potential risks of technology. And I think one of yeah, the ideas was, yeah, can yeah. we take, can we apply all that we've learned? Like we've learned so much about how to m- motivate behaviors, right? To get you to click on a l- ad or to get you to vote for a candidate. I mean, there's all this behavior modification that happens in front of our very eyes every day. And so can we use some of that for a positive thing and help to harness that to help people help themselves? And and I think that's powerful. And I'm excited that the, you know, the the this is a thing that you can do without a doctor's prescription, right? I don't have to write a prescription for you to do this. You can go off and do it and, uh, and you can drive how the process goes in a good way and a bad way. So it's, it's been fun to, to watch. And it's also nice because in the keto world, there is this persistent thing around if you just eat 20 grams of net carbs, you know, or there's some arbitrary cutoff. You know, if you just eat under 20 grams of carbs, or I've heard 30, then you'll be in ketosis. So there's no point in in testing. But what we what that statement doesn't evaluate is people's carbohydrate tolerance. And the more lean, the more muscle mass you have, you know, the more carbohydrates you can have because you dispose those carbohydrates typically in the musculoskeletal system. Absolutely. So, Everybody's different. And that's one of the things I, I agree with you on this arbitrary cut set point of, you know, whatever it is, 20 or 30 grams of carbohydrates. And it, it's, uh, it's, 
it's really quite individualized. And so I think it's the beginning of sort of what could be a movement towards actual real precision medicine. I will say that I think one of the things that I've come to um, believe strongly as a cardiologist to kind of full circle is I do think uh, I'm more concerned with what happens to some of the people who do go on the diet and see their cholesterol get, get kind of wacky. I know this is sort of a topic that, that uh, gets discussed forever and ever on, online and probably will never get settled, but, but it is something as a cardiologist that I think um, I'm not prepared to dismiss. And, and so I think we sort of have taken this approach of trying to, to at least remind people that there's not just one way to do a ketogenic diet. That is, you don't have to eat, you know, unlimited quantities of bacon and butter all day to be in ketosis that actually it may be easier to get into ketosis eating less saturated fat because mm -hmm. of how easily oxidizable and saturated fats are. So, you know, my personal sort of diet today and what I try to preach as being what I think is the optimal diet is one that's rich in what I consider to be healthy fats. So things like, you know, avocado and salmon and nuts, uh, olive oil uh, and things like that. So that, and, and for me, I don't, I don't tell people they can't eat meat or shouldn't ever eat meat, but I certainly wouldn't, um, you know, sort of suggest that that would be the uh, only thing they eat with respect to all of the, my friends who might be doing carnivore diets. I love that you're saying this because I truly believe that there's no one diet for, you know, the, the, the pancea that is, that is, you know, being human. And I think when we, you know, we've all seen debates, you know, Joe Rogan's had vegans debating mm -hmm. meat eaters and, you know, does it cause cancer? And, you know, to, you know, when we have these hyper responders, as you were, as you were referring to where we have, you know, their cholesterol levels, you know, are insane, they're inflammatory marker. You know, there's, I, I love what you're saying. So if you were, and I, this is something that I want, I sort of said this at the beginning of our conversation. There's about, if I could say 10% on the low end to 20% on the high end, people who we look at and six to eight weeks later, they're, they look like they're going to have a heart attack uh, with their, like their, their infl inflammation is up, their LDL particle number is up. All these things are not, they, they look, uh, they don't look like they should. So what are, what are the options? So I love the mono and like the PUFAs and the monounsaturated oh. fat option. And I've given that for people, but if you were to give someone, what, what are the options that someone has when we see that they are potentially a hyper responder or a poor responder to keto? Right. So I think that's the first thing to do is to acknowledge that there are options. One option is to say, okay, well, maybe the net of all of this, of losing weight, of improving your insulin resistance, lower fasting insulin, you know, uh, better glucose homeostasis, all these other things, lower triglycerides, uh, maybe even shifting from pattern B to pattern A, maybe all of that offsets whatever risk a higher LDL cholesterol or non-HDL cholesterol might, might confer. And so I'm willing to take that chance. So that's one option. I think there are people out there who believe um, that that we that maybe that's the case. And there are also people out there who believe that maybe LDL itself or non-HDL or apolipoprotein, apoB, all these things are probably not as harmful as everyone says. And so there's a huge debate. I think from my standpoint as a cardiologist and knowing what I know about the literature, I'm not in that camp. I'm certainly never going to tell anyone what they have to do, but I'm not going to give them... I'm not going to say, I think you should ignore this. So right. one option is to ignore it or to rationalize it. And uh, 
And that's certainly not my favorite option. But there are at least three other options. So one of them you mentioned is to, to, to replace most or all of the saturated fat that the people have in their diet with unsaturated fats, monos and polys. And that's been shown in replacement studies going back now 20, 30, 40 years that you know it is, whether it's all of it or not, it's a debate, but there is no doubt that there is an effect of increasing saturated fat on increasing levels of LDL cholesterol. So if you've reduced that and replaced that, not with carbohydrate, but with healthy fats, like you find in avocado and olive oil, then, then I think that's an option. And it's certainly helped, anecdotally has helped a bunch of my patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know, we're hoping to study that more robustly going forward. Um, another option, which I've you know, talked to colleagues about that seems to work is to increase the carbohydrate intake a little bit. Uh, there are people who believe that you can do the same thing, continue to eat the same amount of saturated fat, but you can actually offset this hyper response by increasing carbohydrate content. I haven't played with that. And so it's hard for me to know. I haven't seen anything published. I know there are a couple of case reports that are supposed to be coming soon, but that's something okay. interesting. And then I think the last option, and this is one that sort of gets dismissed out of hand by most people, but look, if you love the diet that you're on, you feel great, you've lost a bunch of weight and uh, you don't want to change it. You like eating what you eat. And um, then there is always the option of taking a medicine. And, and, you know, whether that medicine is a statin or a different kind of cholesterol medicine, I think that's a, an option. And so I've written prescriptions for people who just say, hey, look, I love doing what I'm doing. I love everything that's happened. I don't want to change what I'm eating. I want to I fix this with medicine. And, uh, and so that's definitely an option as well. Or they can just stop keto. Yeah. Well. Well. Yeah. So that's sort of the, that's also the uh, which no one likes also, to hear. Well, that's also the kind of increasing carbohydrate part of it. Yeah. Or okay. like you say, it's not. This is not for everybody. It's um, there's no doubt um, if they're worried. I guess my net of all this is uh, you come down in really one of two camps where you either worry about the cholesterol or you don't. And until the time in which we have evidence to tell me that we shouldn't worry about this kind of rise in cholesterol. Um, I think I'm going to worry about it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, if I'm proven wrong, then we've, you know, we've basically been a little bit too careful, but I don't think I'm robbing anyone of anything important. If, if you, if I told you, you could have normal cholesterol, if your cholesterol is crazy abnormal eating mostly bacon, ribeye, you know, and butter all day long. And I can tell you, you can have all the benefits of keto and your cholesterol will come down, but you just have to change the composition of, of fats that you eat. A lot of people say that's great. I'll sign me up. And in fact, a lot of people will say, I actually prefer to eat that way. I think eating the other way is kind of a little bit gross. Like it feels yeah, like gross. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I think the important thing is that people just understand that there are options uh, that to me more than anything else is like, if I could convey one thing to everybody, it's, you don't, there's not one way to do keto and there are lots of options. And for the time being, my philosophy is don't dismiss the role of, of, uh, of cholesterol and developing this disease that, as you mentioned, is the number one killer of people in the world. Yes. What is a, what does a typical day look like for you in terms of, <laughs> do you fast what your meal composition looks like? Um, yeah. What does that look like? When is this going to come out? When is this going to come out? Um, it can come out. I have it. I have it scheduled, I think for a month or two from now, but I can okay. move it. No, no, no. It's good. Uh, the reason I'm asking is that we, so as a part of my academic job, I was the pr- uh, principal investigator on a uh, randomized controlled trial where we tested the effect of time-restricted eating. So 16, eight, 16 mm-hmm. hour fasts, eight hour eating window. Mm-hmm. And it was a real randomized trial. So we, we told people to eat one of two ways. 
we tried really hard to hide which one was the intervention, which was the control. So we didn't want people in the control arm to think that they were getting randomized to a, to a, to nothing. So yeah. we called it like aligned eating and told them they had three windows to eat their three meals a day. And, um, and this was in people who were overweight. So BMI of 27 to 40. Mm-hmm. And so we're just now finishing it, analyzing the trial. And I think our, we're about to write the paper. I guess I'll take the chance that this, that our paper's out or actually it's probably fine because we're going to present the um, poster at the endocrinology meetings here in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. So I'll circle point, back to you. Like I, I had had yeah. it in for, I think it was eight weeks from now, but I can, it's fine. I'll circle it back to you if you want. It doesn't matter. So let me just tell you really quickly what we found. And I will tell you that up until a month ago, I did fast uh, almost every day. I would fast for 16 hours. I had done some longer ones. It just wasn't really for me. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I basically almost every day for the past seven years fasted from from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. I would yeah. basically not eat breakfast. I'd have a cup of black coffee in the morning and then I'd have lunch and dinner and stop eating. And I stopped doing that after we uh, looked at the results of our trial, uh, which showed much to my surprise, surprise and initially my chagrin because we really did this trial to try to validate a thing that I thought was going to work in people but had never been tested in people, at least in a robust way. But mm-hmm. we found that there was really very little effect on weight loss. And um, there was a sort of trend towards a little bit more weight loss in the people randomized to time-restricted eating. But that was entire, almost entirely accounted for by a loss in lean muscle mass. So people were losing uh, muscle mass and, uh, and lost no fat mass. So again, looking at body composition, because we did every single metabolic parameter you can think of, whether it's you know, DEXA scans, we measured total energy expenditure using stable, stable isotopes. We uh, measured resting energy expenditure, every blood test and marker you can think of, uh, and really very little effect of this diet other than a, what looks like a significant, although small loss in lean muscle mass. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is if you dig so in the muscle mass loss is not okay. Bad. No, it's not okay. Yeah, so that's not okay. Which is why I stopped fasting. Uh, yeah. And if you look at it, it actually starts to make sense based on some scientific data going back, you know, to decades that, that for reasons that I don't understand that I want to understand, it looks like a lot of, of muscle synthesis, protein synthesis happens in the morning. And mm-hmm. so you need the fuel, you need protein in the morning to, to, to be able to fuel that process. And so if yeah. you're not eating until noon, you're basically trying to build all this muscle without any, trying to run the car on no gas. And so right. I I have changed my behavior based on the result of a trial that I didn't expect. And uh, it's hard because I lived this way for a long time and I kind of have to remind myself to eat. But I, uh, I as a, you know, 51, 50, almost 51 year old man, don't really want to lose more muscle mass than I'm going to lose anyway as I get older. So, And when uh, we think about MPS too, we also become more resistant to protein as we age, right? So yeah. the bolus yeah. has to be larger over time. So, you know, maybe 20 to 25 grams of uh, high quality, let's say from an animal protein or whey or whatever might be enough to initiate that leucine, you know, MPS, you know, uh, cascade. But as we get older, it's like 40 grams, 50 grams in order to, in order to initiate the same response. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is an example of where I, where, where, so two things I'd say about this trial. One is, um, it's really important to have a control arm in a in a nutrition intervention, right? It's yep. everybody lost weight. The control arm people, actually, the per- people who lost the most weight were the people in the control arm, and that speaks to kind of the uh, effect of people in clinical trials wanting to perform and placebo and et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Uh, yeah. That uh, and then I think just being open minded and not being attached too much to dogma. I think 
I learned that, uh, that while my weight may have gone down when I started doing this, I wasn't doing serial body composition analysis. I was probably preferentially losing muscle over fat. At least that's mm-hmm. what we see is where you're losing two to one mm-hmm. in terms of grams of weight lost. You're losing two to one grams of protein versus grams of fat mass. And were the people in the study also sending a mechanical stimulation? Were they doing resistance training or was it just nutrition? Just nutrition. We didn't give them any instruction on what to do. We didn't tell them to stop, but we didn't tell them to do anything Mm -hmm. with their exercise. This is really the test of a prescription of a, uh, you know, simple nutrition intervention uh, against, uh, you know, sort of what's the standard way most people eat in the modern world. Right. It'd be interesting to see. So time restricted eating, and then I would want to see how that would pair up with caloric restriction. So they're still eating. Yeah. So you can still play with the protein bolus in the morning to still drive the MP, the muscle protein synthesis. But if you were to restrict the calories, I wonder the overall calories, I wonder what. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, there's an investigator, a really, really phenomenal investigator named Courtney Peterson, who's based at UAB in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And she works on, on, you know, circadian rhythms and eating and has been, she trained at the Pennington and she's really, she's one of these people, she's a little bit like, um, in some ways like Kevin Hall, cause she trained as a mathematician and a physicist. And so comes at this from a modeling perspective, but she's been very uh, strongly interested in what she calls early time restricted eating. So instead of what we did, which was sort of late time restricted eating, where you, mm. you're eating windows from noon to 8 PM, she shifts it and it's like 6 PM to 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. that you're supposed to eat. So it's the old eat like a uh, breakfast like a lion, lunch like I can't remember the saying. But the idea is eat most of your calories early in the day and have very little. Breakfast like a king, lunch yeah, like a right. prince, yeah, yeah, dinner yeah, like yeah. a pauper. Yeah, you got it. There, you go. I'll yeah, never yeah. remember that. Yeah. But uh, but she's <laughs> done some very small studies uh, that suggest that that may be particularly beneficial. So I'm interested in potentially trying to. Uh, to repeat the the you know study that we just did, comparing early versus late time restricted eating to see if there's a difference, particularly on muscle synthesis. That's really interesting because I also find personally I like to eat between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And sometimes it's you know I'll extend it to th- you know the kids come home I have a little snack with them like three o'clock or whatever. But I don't actually like to have dinner. When I have dinner, my sleep is not good. I have weird dreams. If I eat 6 p.m. or later, I can't. I don't know. I like to, I like to have an empty stomach, like from, for multiple hours before I go to sleep. Well, it's probably good for you. I mean, at least based on some early data, it looks like it's probably good for you. But the problem is many people do like eating dinner. It's also the most social meal that we have as human beings, right? We all like to sit down and have a meal together. And so Mm -hmm. I think my kids would probably, they already think I'm super weird, but they think I'm really weird (laughs) if I sat down at uh, (laughs) and drink water like I do. Yeah. 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 Uh, you still haven't answered what you eat. So I'd love to know. Oh, so sorry. you're fasting? Yeah. yeah. I want to know uh, what you so, eat. And then, yeah. Well, so now I, um, I have for breakfast, I'll have some protein. I'll have like a, a hard boiled egg or some smoked salmon, or we make these bars now that I think are delicious and I'll eat Oh my God. And, they're amazing. Yeah. The chocolate brownie yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we worked yeah. hard on those and I think they, they taste good, but, but the thing that I'm most proud of is that they're really nutritious. Like I think, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to make a, I don't know if I'd call it a health food because it's a processed food, but it, it's hard to make something that's like really good and, and sort of adheres to all the standards that I care about. Yeah. You know, it's really limited number of ingredients, mostly almonds. And mm-hmm. um, 
got a lot of fiber. It's got very low saturated. Chicory, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but importantly, my kids like them and they don't like any of this stuff. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I'll have one of those or I'll have, you know, like I said, a, a hard-boiled egg or some smoked salmon in the morning. For, bre- for lunch, I have the same thing every day, although I vary what's in it. I make a salad and I make it every morning. I'll make my you know, kids' lunch. I make my lunch. And it's, you know, a bunch of chopped vegetables, lettuce, some, you know, some green. I throw in these lupini beans, which I think are great. They're super high in protein, high in fiber, and low in carbohydrate. I will throw in some bunch of macadamia nuts. I'll cut up an avocado. Um, and then some protein, usually some salmon. I actually found this really good, relatively affordable canned salmon I'll throw in or tuna or smoked salmon or something. If I have leftover from the night from dinner the night before, I'll chop that up and throw it in there and then just toss it in olive oil. I keep behind me in my office here, I keep, you know, gallons of olive oil and basically douse it in olive oil. So that's lunch. And then dinner is simple. Dinner is usually some protein. I'm a fish fanatic. So fish many times a week and occasionally, you know, chicken and very occasionally some other meat, but then roasted vegetables and, and our, you know, my kids complain about the sort of rotation of call, roasted cauliflower, broccoli, asparagus, <laughs> yeah. you know, Brussels sprouts, but basically toss them with salt and pepper and a bunch of olive oil and, and that's kind of dinner. And then I, I will have a small bit of Lily's dark chocolate almost every night I, mm-hmm. uh, before I go to, you know, before I stop eating. So mm-hmm. that's kind of me. And then I'm pretty boring. I kind of do the same thing, you know, that's it. But that's I love awesome. it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's my not. You cannot take my dark chocolate away from me. I don't yeah. care if it, if you told me that I was going to have a heart attack ten years earlier. I'm still going to have coffee and chocolate. Those are the two yeah. things that I can't give up. I think that one. So I always talk about my non-negotiables, and coffee is top of the list non-negotiable. Oh, like I couldn't give that up. Mm. But wine is up there too for me. I drink a couple. I usually will have one or two glasses of, of wine uh, with dinner, and it would be hard for me to give that up. And I think dark chocolate's sneaking into the list of non-negotiables for me too. I think it'd be hard to give that up. Doc, you have been such a wealth of information today. As I expected, this has been brilliant. And the intention of today's podcast was really to empower people with information so that they can make better choices, right? It's a Maya Angelou or Maya Angelou quote, you know better, you do better. So thank you so much for your time. Um, If people, I know people are going to want to reach out. They're going to want to follow you. Where Where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, the place, although I'm there much less than I used to be, uh, the place I spend the most time is, is Twitter, but my handle on Twitter and Instagram is the same. It's at Ethan J Weiss. So, uh, Ethan middle initial J Weiss. Uh, and you can find me there and I have open DMs and usually try to respond to people as long as they're not like openly racist and mean. Right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time today, doc. Of course. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. 
This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Sima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.